Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Adventures in Machine Learning. It is Michael Burke, and I am joined by my co-host, Ben Wilson. And today we are going to be having a panelist discussion on time series models. It should be a really fun, high-level discussion, and also we'll have some practical tips and tricks for how you can get the most out of time series forecasting. Hey, folks, this is Charles Maxwood from Top End Devs. And lately, I've been working on actually building out Top End Devs. If you're interested, you can go to topendevs.com slash podcast, and you can actually hear a little bit more about my story, about why I'm doing what I'm doing with Top End Devs, why I changed it from uh, devchat.tv to Top End Devs. But what I really want to get into is that I have decided that I'm going to build the platform that I always wished I had with devchat.tv and I renamed it to Top End Devs because I want to give you the resources that are going to help you to build the career that you want, right? So whether you want to be an influencer in tech, whether you want to go and just max out your salary and then go live a lifestyle with your family, your friends, or just traveling the world or whatever, I, I want to give you the resources that are going to help you do that. We're going to have career and leadership resources in there, and we're going to be giving you content on a regular basis to help you level up and max out your career. So go check it out at topendevs.com. If you sign up before my birthday, that's December 14th. If you sign up before my birthday, you can get 50% off the lifetime of your subscription. Once again, that's topendevs.com. So if we dive a little bit deeper, what we're planning on covering, and who knows, it could change at any moment, um, but we're planning on covering some high-level methods for thinking about time series models. Then we're going to go into some specific models and talk about the models that we have used and the models that we've seen success with. And then finally, we'll talk about how to prepare data for those models. Sound good, Ben? Sounds great. Cool. So let's dive right in. One thing that I have learned the hard way throughout my experience working with time series models is that they're actually really simple. <laughs> and a lot of them borrow techniques from linear regression. So just to provide a face to the name. Um, I did my senior thesis on coral reef health, and I was looking to forecast basically how coral reefs in the Caribbean would be doing five years, 10 years out, and also look at, spe well, more specifically, look at species in the, in the Caribbean Sea and see what the population rate would be five and 10 years out. Um, so with that, I used, started off with autoregressive models, um, moved into seasonal ARIMA models, and also tried to get uh, profit to work. And that had mixed results. But um, Ben, what is your experience in time series? And can you elaborate a bit on whether you've used any ARIMA models or anything of the like? Yeah, I've uh, my first exposure to time series modeling was somewhat of a comical story. Somebody who is high up in management, not naming names or places, but at a place I worked was like, hey, we need to forecast our sales. And we're currently doing it in finance. And it's just, it's not working the way that we want to. And I was like, well, what do you mean not working the way you want to? And they're like, well, we have to adjust all of the, the spreadsheets every, every week. And I was like, can you explain more? Uh, what do you mean adjust the spreadsheets? And they, they show me this financial spreadsheet. It's in Microsoft Excel. And it's full of all of these equations. And most of them are just modifications to differencing terms. Like, hey, what was it previous quarter? I'm going to add this fudge factor in here based on actual sales. And they're constantly adjusting certain terms that were the baseline of these. And it was projecting out in a, a predictable way. And I kind of looked at it and like, well, yeah, this doesn't seem right. It, it seems like you're just, just fudging the numbers in order to get these, these sort of forecasts. And there's a lot of like human intervention here constantly. Like, yeah, we want it automated. I'm like, okay, I know nothing about this, but like I always do when I'm presented with a new problem that I have no understanding of, I go and do research and read about it. Ask, ask some people like, hey, how do, how do you do this at your company? How do you do forecasting? And a lot of the, my, my buddies in industry that I had talked to, they all came back with, I don't know, finance uses some Excel macros to do that stuff. Like, okay, somebody's got to have a better answer here. And then I talked to, to one person who worked at a, a very reputable, very uh, revenue-heavy company. Uh, that I had worked with before. It's like, oh, you want to look in uh, this Python package stats models. That, that's what we, we built for our finance team. Uh, it's got like a Rima, it's got, you know, Sarima. You know, you want to be careful about, you know, using the, the tunability of Ceramax though. I'm like, dude, you're speaking ancient Greek to me. I have no idea what you're talking about. He's like, oh, just, just read the Wikipedia page, read stats models docs, you get it figured out. All right, all right, okay. So I did that over a, 
you know, a weekend, Monday morning rolls around, find out. I have no idea what the heck I was reading, uh, but it sounded cool. So I started playing around with some of our data sets for sales and and uh, ran it through the you know the examples from within stats models and found that everything was garbage. Uh, it was predicting things that went to positive in infinity to negative infinity. Some of them, because I was just randomly throwing APIs in there and got some of them that were like, oh, it's like this decay function to zero. I'm like, hopefully that's not real or I got to update my resume. So I went back to the drawing board, read some more stuff, figured out some more, got a book on on the topic and read it. And I was like, oh, geez, now I think I get it. And it's exactly as you said, Michael, The uh, it's just a linear equation. That forecast, that model that we call time series model, is just coefficients in a, in a linear equation that explain kind of the general shape of the data. And once I grokked that, I was like, oh, each one of these different models that are in these software packages, it's just different ways of figuring out what those equations need to be. And each one is, is sort of designed for its own use case. Or they built upon, you know, previous art and made it better and better. And when they when developers of those algorithms do that, there's never or it's very rarely that you go from prior art, make improvements to it, and all of a sudden that those improvements replace the prior art. There's always sacrifices that have to be made. Like it'll work really good for this one set of problems, but it's less generalizable than than its predecessor. So it's really bad for these other sorts of of time series. That's, yeah, that's a good point. You, time series tends to be very sensitive to any type of shift in the data. And you can get predictions up to infinity. My favorite is the flat line. That's always a good <laughs> one. And then also you can get into weird negative territory as well, um, depending upon the method. So yeah. The flat line. That's funny. In case anybody's wondering, <laughs> oh, bad. what that is, is your moving average term is basically one and it's using the prior and your regression, your autoregressive term that came out of that is zero. For like all of the terms are zero. So it didn't fit. It didn't learn anything. So it just says, use prior, use prior, use prior, use prior. So it's just this flat line from where the series left off. So it's a really bad model. But it's better than the, hey, our sales is, you know, in, in the next month is going to be higher than the GDP of Earth. <laughs> which I've seen that. <laughs> yeah, cool. So let's... um leverage sort of a case study or a scenario and talk through that. And with that, hopefully we can explain some models, how they work, um, and maybe some of our experience and best practices. So let's say we are looking to forecast how many salespeople we need for next quarter. Quarter, excuse me. So we are a software as a service company, and we are selling the best service out there. And we need to know how many salespeople we need on the floor to get this product out into the right hands. Last year, we had 100 people, and we have been doing really great so far, but we need to know what we're going to need to hire for for this year. So Ben, how would you start? <laughs> it really depends on what our our target is going to be. So when we approach a problem like this, you could do it from a like best guess of say, hey, let's just do number of salespeople historically. That introduces a lot of bias. And that assumes that we're managing our headcount very efficiently. Not a good assumption to make, uh, regardless of how great we think our company is at, our, our hypothetical company is at having salespeople uh, at the right targets. Conversely, what you could do is look at it from the other side and say, how many deals are we closing for our, our product that we're offering? And we can model out number of deal closures over time and say, this is what our expected deal closure is going to be. So we can then figure out how well aligned the number of salespeople we had in previous years were to the deal closures that we had at that time. And that'll work. In fact, I would, I would definitely do that and start very simply. I wouldn't even do it necessarily ARIMA at first. I might just do a moving average. And just do a like a very simple window differencing function and say, what's my trend? And is it positive? Is it flat? Like, what is that rate of change? And then if we need to get it more and more accurate, introduce more and more complex models. But as a first pass, I'd want to understand that data and see what are our residuals here in this this term that we're doing? What is is there a seasonality associated with this? And use some tools to figure that out. But with the raw data that we have at our hands... I would probably sit down in a room with you 
and we'd we'd say, hey, man, what can we do with the data that we have? Like, let's think about this problem and say, what if we combine the terms of deal closures and number of people? And what if we also figure out some sort of metric that's associated with with headcount availability? Can we extrapolate from the data that we collect how many deals didn't go, like, go through because we took too long to respond? Or we didn't, we didn't have enough time to dedicate to the sales cycle for this particular customer. And if we can capture those, that can tell us that, hey, we were understaffed at this time or we were overstaffed at this time. And if we can mathematically factor that into the, number, the, the deal closure rate, then we can get a metric that we can actually forecast. So yeah, first step is like thinking through all that stuff and then making sure that we're collecting that data and then play jazz with some stats packages and say, let's try some stuff out. We don't have to get super accurate. We don't have to get super perfect from the get-go. We just need to understand through an analysis of the data what this data actually is all about. So decompose the trend, which would take out you know the trend term. We would get the seasonality terms out of that. Uh, over time and also get the residuals. So if we have those those three elements, that that's what makes up a time series, like a seasonal time series. And then we can do some tests on that and say, hey, is this, is this data stationary? And by stationary, we mean, <coughs> can we remove the trend from the data? Like, is there a trend there that if we remove that, that Y equals MX plus B term uh, from the data, does it all of a sudden become flat and you just have these spikes or, you know, sort of like a sine wave that's present in there. And if we do that manipulation and we don't get that, the data is not stationary and there's something else going on there, then we've got a problem. And we have to go in and do some clever things with transformations of that data to enforce stationarity. Because if yeah. you fit a model, you fit that ARIMA on garbage data or data that's not stationary, that's when you get the crazy stuff like, hey, it's going to positive infinity. We need to hire... For our sales team next year, we need to hire all humans on planet Earth. Every single one of them needs to work for us in order to hit our targets. And, you know, it sounds ridiculous because it is, but the, a model trained on improper data or um, improperly clean data will do crazy stuff like that. Yeah, so let me try to recap a bit and um, provide some, some colorful examples. So it sounds like step number one, and this is honestly step number one in most things in the world, is understand how the system works. So you need to know how your target will be used, what your target actually represents, how your target interacts with the rest of the components in the system. So if you're forecasting salespeople, for instance, you need to know what are the bottom lines? How, how do we know how many salespeople we need in our historical data? Were they working above capacity or below capacity? All these things should be taken into account. And you can skip that step, but it's really, really hard to produce a useful model. Um, it could be accurate, but it might not be super useful. So from there, um, we have, let's say, a time series of five years. So the company's been around for five years, and we've sort of grown pretty linearly or exponentially or whatever you want to call it over the past five years. There's some seasonal components. So there's sort of a sine wave an up and down trend throughout this curve. Um, and we're looking to then start building a model that will capture this structure and look forward to forecast how many salespeople we actually need. So Ben, you said that you would start with maybe a moving average or like an AR model. What are those? That's basically just a lag function on a series. So in the world of BI or, or data engineering, when you do a, a window function, you can put in sort of a differencing term. You say, hey, I want to know what the data is on this row or the, this particular event minus seven days ago or minus yesterday or minus three days ago, whatever that differencing term is. In an AR model, you're actually setting, or uh, sorry, in an MA model, a moving average model, you're actually setting that that term, that differencing term. We call it the differ differencing term. In most in Python stats models, that goes by lowercase d for ARMA or ARIMA. And you can also use a period term in there, which is lowercase p, which will give you some additional flavor on associating like how long in the past you should be looking at, at a differencing function. But when you're doing a moving average, you're just looking at what the rate of change is over time. And you can, you can extrapolate that in the future by taking that very simple equation, that lag function, 
if it happens to be, I want to know what a, the rate of change is of today's data versus seven days ago. I'm going to get an answer there so I can add that term to my next seven day window added to that, you know, my current term. So if it's, if we're trying to look at today's Friday for us, I don't know when it's going to be released, but if we're looking at today and we're, uh, let's say we, we run a hot dog stand and we're selling hot dogs. We want to know, Hey, how many hot dogs are we going to sell next Friday? A simple moving average would be how many hot dogs did we sell last week? And at the end of today, how many hot dogs did we sell? Well, let's say we sold 40 more than last week. That becomes our, our moving average term, 40. So whatever today's sales were, when we predict what next Friday's sales are, it's going to be today's plus 40. And we walk through the data that way. So on Saturday, we do last Saturday versus this Saturday. What's the difference? Add that to Saturdays, and that gets us next Saturday. So those simple models, it's shocking how well they work for stable data where your only real influence is the trend over time. And there's lots of things that can be explained in that way. What so are some you, stable data sets that you've seen? Ooh, stuff that has enough interaction uh, from a chaotic environment that you have enough data points where the natural chaos of the system doesn't influence anything. So if we're looking at, let's say if we were doing foot traffic through Grand Central Station over time, and we do like monthly foot traffic or number of people coming into LaGuardia Airport, provided that there's no black swan events, there's no COVID-19 and shutdown of air travel and stuff, but steady state operations, there's so many latent factors that would influence a single person's decision to come to that airport on that day. That's impossible to model. It, it, like you can't do it. There's too many variables. But when we're talking about in aggregation, the number of people getting on airplanes or going to, to meet people to pick them up from that airplane, from the, their flights arriving, there's so many people over such a wide area, like a wide collection of latent variables. On aggregation, it tends to pretty much work. So simple models work in systems like that. Or if you're trying to determine if there's any gardeners listening, uh, if you have if you have a garden that, that bees and butterflies like, imagine trying to predict how many bees are going to visit a single flower in your garden. Uh, if you have like a half acre garden, like a rose garden, if you're looking at a single flower and you're like, oh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to predict how many bees are going to visit this one flower today. Good luck getting within an order of magnitude accuracy on something like that. Like, how do you know what is going to determine that? But if instead you change your perspective to say, I don't care how many come to that one flower. I want to know how many come into my garden every day. And with that amount of you know, events happening and the randomness that's associated with however bees determine which flowers to go to at which time and, and on which day, all of that sort of neutralizes itself. And you now have this more, much more stable, less noisy trend. Yeah, that's a phenomenal analogy, actually. It, the relevant piece here is sample size. So if you sort of think about a variance calculation, the larger the variance, the larger that confidence interval or that like sort of bluish tint around your line, the wider that'll be um, and the less certain you'll be in, in the precision of your estimate. But if you can get a phenomenon that has a large sample size, it tends to be more closely centered around whatever the actual underlying trend is. So yeah, birds and bees, good call. And hot dogs. And hot dogs. Can't forget about hot dogs. And then before we move on, I just want to dispel something that took me months, if not years, to learn. Moving average is not a moving average in the moving average sense of the word. So it's not a rolling window where you take the average. It is an autoregressive component of the differences. That was so freaking confusing to me when I was reading a textbook and I was like, it's not a moving average. I see the formula right here. That's not how you calculate a moving average. I'm not sure why they named it that. I guess it is kind of a, well, I don't even know that it, it's like roughly a moving average, but it is not the typical moving average you think of. So for R or for ARMA models or ARMA models, or even ARIMA models, the, the moving average component is not a moving average. If you take away one thing, please take that away. <laughs> Yeah, that's why Arima has that that term integrated, which is like we're integrating the concept of these 
effectively series of regression equations and coupling them together in order to create a single equation that explains what that is. And then you can go even further than that where you're like, okay, we're going to exponential smoothing and we can do first order exponential smoothing. We can do second order and then we can do third order, which has its own special name called Holt-Winters exponential smoothing, which is one of the most powerful of the classical time series modeling. It's one of the late, it's one of the last ones that was developed uh, in the late 1970s that is kind of the pinnacle of classical modeling terms about how to do that. And those make really good models. But there's a trade-off that we'll discuss a little bit later, maybe next time that we're like doing an, an episode on this topic about what's the trade-off between quality of model versus complexity of training. There is yeah, a trade-off. Um, that, that's the topic I'm excited about. But hope, Well, probably not today. We'll see. But yeah, so one way to think about this class of models is you can think of it as a linear model and we incrementally add terms. So the most simple is AR, which is autoregressive, and we just lag prior values. And it often time series are univariate, meaning we only have one variable. The next step in complexity is adding moving, moving average term. And as Ben said, that's sort of looking at the differences and adding a coefficient to that. So AR has one component, MA has another component. The third component is ARIMA. At least that's typically how these models are incre incrementally increasing complexity. And the I stands for um, how much you're differencing the terms. So an order of one means you take term one and term two and difference them once. An order of two means you difference them twice. An order of three means you difference them three times and so forth. And now with that all assembled, we have the classic ARIMA models. And those are super famous. And I'm sure um, if you've worked in time series at all, you'll, you've probably seen those models. Then as Ben started hinting at, there are a bunch of other additions on top of that. And it's really important to note that we're still using a linear uh, relationship where we're gathering linear relationships, where we're transforming the data so that the coefficients can actually fit seasonal up and down components. So one that I have tried to use with mediocre success is Sarima or seasonal Arima. And in stats models, I think it's just a lowercase PDQ or maybe an uppercase, but it just changes the case. Uh, uh, it's you know, both. So it's, it's both. It's a two tuple component uh, mm -hmm. for the ordering terms. So open paren, lowercase p, comma d, comma q, close parentheses, comma, next tuple is capital P, capital D, capital Q. And then there's an S term in there for the, the seasonality. Right. They're complex to tune if you're doing it manually. Yeah. Hi, this is Charles Maxwood from Top End Devs. And lately I've been coaching some people on starting some podcasts and in some cases just taking their career to the next level. You know, whether you're beginner going to intermediate, intermediate going to advanced, whether you're trying to get noticed in the community or go freelance. I've been helping these folks figure out how to get in front of people, how to build relationships and how to build their careers and max out. And, and just go to the next level. So if you're interested in talking to me and having me help you go to the next level, go to topendevs.com slash coaching. I will give you a one hour free session where we can figure out what you're trying to do, where you're trying to go and figure out what the next steps are. And then from there, we can figure out how to get you to the place you want to go. So once again, that's topendevs.com slash coaching. Yeah, and then from there, you can add on uh, external variables. Um, and Ben and I were actually chatting about this before we started recording. It's rare that that is super effective because if you're using an external variable to forecast, well, how do you know what the external variable will be when you're forecasting? So it's great when you're training, but let's say you're using the classic example is weather. And I've actually done this for commodity pricing. And I realized, oh, I don't know what the weather is a month from now. So how can I use the coefficient on weather to figure out what the price is? So Ben made a really insightful point, which was if you have scheduled events like a concert or this or that, then you can use exogenous variables in your time series forecast. But if not, exogenous variables aren't super helpful for forecasting. Inference, they're useful, but for forecasting, not so useful. Mm -hmm. And that's basically the extent of what I've used in practice. Ben, have you used more complex ARIMA-based structures? I mean, I've definitely built my fair share of RMAX and Ceramax and Aramax. 
sorry for all the acronym soup, everybody. Uh, it's just how all this stuff is. Nobody reads out the entire acronym, but I have used the exogenous variables in terms, just like you said, like it's really important for inferencing. And what we mean by inferencing, let's say, let's go back to hot dogs. Everybody, I don't know if everybody loves hot dogs, but let's just say everybody loves hot dogs. There's a few vegetarians our, out there, so probably not. Oh, our stand has vegan hot dogs too. Excuse me. Sorry. <laughs> let's say we, our, we got our, our uh, hot dog stand in Central Park and we're trying to forecast how many hot dogs and buns we're going to need over the next three months because we got to place some big order that is like, hey, here's how many we're going to get shipped in every week from our supplier. And they need to know three months in advance. Uh, and we don't want to throw these things away. We don't want to you know, heavily discount them. We just want you know, relatively what we need for that weekend. And that's really what we care about is that weekend's rush. So we could try weather. Good luck. Uh, you might be accurate for you know, the, the next seven days because we would have a forecast probability of rain from a bunch of different weather uh, services. And we could put that in so we could have one model that has that exogenous regressor of rain percentage per day on, you know, hot dog sales. And we have that for the last three years. So what we could do is we could put that in, in our forecast for the next seven days and saying, Hey, next weekend, the forecast is saying there's a, a 22% chance of rain. And that'll adjust that, that forecast. If the model is tuned well to say, Hey, maybe, maybe don't order so many hot dogs. There's not going to be that pe- many people walking up, but a better idea, which you alluded to, which is like, hey, what if we put on the Yankees home schedule for uh, like for New York and maybe the Mets as well? Who knows if anybody listens to the Mets or likes the Mets. But if we had their their schedule of when the team's home and when there's going to be games, we have all that data going back probably 80 years or whatever since the Yankees were founded. And we can get that schedule. And a lot of those things, they don't change. So we know in the future, we know for the entire next year when each of those games are going to be going down. If there's a correlation in that series between those those events that aren't explained by seasonality and newsflash, that's not seasonality. Most scheduled things that people are doing, it's not something that's repeatable. It's not like, hey, the Yankees are home playing in, in their stadium every Wednesday or every other Wednesday. It's going to be different times. They're going to have road games. They're going to be back home. There's going to be like an all-star game. There's all this stuff that happens. But there could be other events that are happening in our immediate vicinity. There could be festivals going on in Central Park that we might want to say, hey, let's capture when a music festival is going to going to be going on. And if we have that schedule three months in advance, if there's a correlation, that becomes useful. But for the inference, you could use that for simulation. If we go back to the, the weather thing, what if we did a, a worst case scenario and a best case scenario a forecast? And that could give us error terms on our own forecast on the one that doesn't have exogenous regressor terms. We could take those estimates of what happens if every Saturday and Sunday for the next three months is rained out and there's a hurricane like on one of the weekends versus what it happens if every weekend is sunny and 74 degrees, you know, for the next three months. And that could give us best case scenario and worst case scenario with those terms and those historical data so that when we run our main model, which could be something completely removed from Aramax or Saramax, we could look at that, at the results coming out of there. And if any point that's forecast is outside of those inference best condition versus worst condition, we can flag that as saying, maybe we need to look into this or maybe our model is not that good go back to the drawing board. So that's kind of what I've used stuff like that for in the past. You know, building a forecast that provides boundaries, guardrails for the main production model. And that main production model could be a single model or in the case of things that I've built that are really important to get right in the past, I've done something that's going to sound super hacky, but it's shocking how well it works, which is take five or six different models all in the same data that all solve in a different way and do a weighted average of them, of their actual forecast. So from ultra simple to an actual moving average function that's written in, you know, in SQL effectively, and average those values all the way to the output of an LSTM or, you know, like a PyTorch model or something, or the output of profit or PMD Arima, 
and I just average all those together. And based on back testing of of all of those and the averages, I'm actually tuning what those weighted averages should be based on their performance in back testing. That is hacky. I I have also seen it perform really well, but that just like sort of thinking out loud, why I like that's not a common practice in other machine learning applications. No, it, it don't do done. that in other yeah. machine learning applications. Yeah. Why do you think that's the case with time series? And my initial reaction would be that different models pick up different components in the time series. And time series, like univariate data, is very complex. Yes. So if you have a big squiggle and then a bunch of little squiggles and then you have some more squiggles, you put them all into one time series. Different models will pick up different squiggles better than others. So is that why like we're we're doing like signal processing and decomposing super complex signals so models will pick up parts of the signal better than others is that why that works so well or do you have other insight that's always been my explanation it could be completely wrong <laughs> but just based on anecdotal practitioner evidence of trying it on lots of real world data i've seen it work out better than doing one mega complex you know state of the art implementation I've seen and helped people re sort of revisit these problems at companies that I've interacted with. And they're like, well, we have this this cool new LSTM structure. It's you know, it's got a, a graph like it's an embedded graph on the LSTM and we, we have, you know, a thousand different feature terms that are in this and it helps to explain all this stuff. I'm like, okay, well, how does it work on on your back testing on cross validation. And they're like, well, we, what do you mean? We trained on the data up until today. I'm like, all right, let's retrain. Let's like zero all the weights out. Let's retrain everything up to three months ago. And let's see how well it predict, you know, how well it performs in the past three months of data. And they're like, oh, well, it's probably not going to do that. I'm like, just do it. Show me what it, it results. And it's usually not that great. It, it's okay. And then I show them like, hey, what if we used a couple of these these auto tuning frameworks. Let's use PMD Arima, and it's that's a wrapper around you know stats models, Ceramax and Arima and stuff like that. And let's use Profit and let's do Holt Winters. Let's do a couple of these these classic ones, some very simple models, and then some of these automated ones. And let's just average the values together. And when you overlay all of them onto the same plot, you'll see exactly as you said the squiggles. They start canceling each other out. And what you're starting to do is generalize better to the overall trend. And that's the end goal of a well-trained, supervised learning model is generalization. That's what we want to do. We don't want 100% accuracy. You don't want that overfit because when it sees something it hasn't seen before, it's going to go nuts and it's going to predict insanity. So what we can do with averaging all of those out, some of them are not going to respond well to recent changes in data. It's going to do crazy stuff. It might start kicking up exponentially towards positive infinity at some future date, or it might start just flatlining six weeks out, and you don't want that. But other ones won't do that. So it's sort of the average of all of those is generally does pretty well. But an important thing to bring up with that is be careful how far out in the future you're trying to predict. Uh, forecasting becomes less effective. I always think of it as like the inverse square law from physics. And I remember it by point source radiation stuff. So you can stand 16 feet away from a, an operating nuclear reactor. You're going to have a bad day, maybe a bad couple of months. If you stand 16 inches away from that reactor, you're, you're going to have a very short day. And it's going to be the, a very short life after that point. So the closer you are to something, the more intense and the more accurate it's going to you know, sort of be. The further away you get, the less of a, a signal you're going to have. So I, I think of that when I think of time series forecasting, that the more intense, close proximity to your most recent data of when the series is actually generated, the better you're going to have of a, a signal of like what is going on. Further away you get, you're not going to even be aware of what reality is. What inverse square means that it's sort of an exponential-ish relationship or like a squared relationship for the distance from the reactor versus how likely you are to die. Yeah, so it... Cool. For every unit awesome. of distance you go out, it's a squared, it's like square root less of radiation that is hitting your body. Sorry, nuclear yeah. engineering analogy. Yeah, no, that, that's helpful. I'll, I'll steer clear of, of my neighborhood nuclear reactor. And, uh, as long um, as you're not in the reactor compartment, you're fine. Try to stay away from them when they're actually on. 
yeah, I've heard they can be dangerous. Herpets. Cool. So that sort of wraps up the class of linear-based models. We've been hinting at profit and LSTMs. Ben, which would you like to tackle next? I mean, profit's pretty cool simply because... Well, not simply because there's a lot of reasons profit's cool. It has an auto solver associated with it that is pretty sophisticated and leverages some some very fast solvers that are in other open source packages. I think there's two different backends now with 1.01. Um, I can't can't remember being you know a little bit out of touch after uh, being on paternity leave, but uh, I think they did a release while I was out. And uh, I think they have a new backend that you can select. But that solver, it does a lot of the, I mean, it, it automates all of the tuning that you would normally have to do with ARIMA-based models. You don't have to define, you know, your PD and your Q or your S and all those capital PD and Q terms. You don't have to think about any of that stuff. And if you've ever tried to hand-tune a, like a Sarima model, without using an optimization framework, you'll know what I'm talking about, about how painful that is, where you're like, okay, I have these these terms that they seem like they're independent of one another, but they're actually not. So I can't just set my PDQ to be 102. If I go 112, I take the differencing term up one. Now it, it doesn't have the same effect. Like you could take, go from 102 to 204, is not the same as going from like one 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 to two two two. The relationships exist amongst those terms about how they actually affect what the the forecast is going to be, what the model is going to be, and trying to wrap your head around that and tune that and test out all of these different permutations for a particular series. It's really complicated. So Profit does that for you. It figures out what these effective terms need to be in order to get there the actual coefficients for a linear equation can you elaborate a bit on how it works under the hood because with linear models we talked about how there's an ar term an ma term integration term and you can keep going but what are the components of profit for its arguments no for for like the so back to the analogy of having many squiggles what are the different ways that it captures squiggles so under the hood if I remember correctly, and I might not be right now, but it's doing a Fourier transformation in order to effectively smooth out that that uh, that term uh, in this the series, and it's much easier with transformed data to determine what those terms are going to be, like what a Rima is actually using for figuring out what a, a lag term is and what autoregressive terms would be. So it's doing some clever things there, but in its process of acting on that that fast Fourier transformation. It's got some clever tricks uh, up its sleeve about solving for that in the most uh, generalizable manner. doesn't always work, but for a lot of real-world use cases that I've played around with, it worked pretty darn well. Yeah. yeah one, one thing that I have seen drive success with Profit is the fact that it tries to break down seasonality with Fourier decomposition. So essentially, it tries to fit increasingly complex polynomials. That's that's at least my understanding of Fourier transformations. Not super well versed, um, but you essentially add terms on in a additive manner um, with different levels of complexity for the polynomial, and then after a while, you can create an approximation of pretty much any curve. And because yeah. seasonality is repeating, that's a really effective way to fit that seasonality, and so. I thought that was a very smart approach. And I remember actually listening to, uh, what was his name? Sean something. Sean Taylor, uh, the, the original creator of Profit. Um, it was made at Facebook. Yeah. yeah, Facebook research. It was interesting to see him talk through that process of where he, he thought this was a good idea, but he was the project was absolutely failing. Then he brought in someone with a lot more stats expertise, and they were able to essentially make the components work together. So that Fourier transformation, along with other terms like uh, trend and seasonality, or not seasonality, but trend, um, it really made the, the, the model very effective. But one thing that I think is pretty overhyped, and I would be curious for your opinion, Ben, is the ability to manually add change points. So change points are essentially locations in the time series where we expect 
the coefficients of our our of our model to change because of a black swan event or there's just some systematic change in the structure and theoretically subject matter subject matter experts can go in and they can say hey we expect it to change tomorrow or the next day i've never actually seen that benefit models in practice have you been so one thing that's very important for for practitioners of these these open source packages to remember is where did it come from so who built it i i promise you that x facebook now meta was interested in forecasting potential ad revenue like how many people do we think are going to be logging into the site and viewing these pages so their solution was built to solve a problem at that company so you're not going to really find a a better implementation that's going to do social networking like data that's going to outperform profit so if you're talking about visitors to your site clicks on things in emails or you're looking at the actions of humans to something that is relatively accessible to them that framework is going to outperform pretty much anything else that's out there at least from my experience it's awesome at that now if you're trying to use a, a tool like profit to forecast weather or the stock market or looking at inventory management for for products that you don't sell frequently if you're like hey how many sales are we going to have for this tool that my company makes that is $850,000 well, you're probably not selling 10 of those a day or 100 or 1000 of those a day you're probably selling like one every 2 weeks so if you're doing daily modeling of that you have a, a bunch of zero data in there it doesn't it's not designed to handle that because when you do the the Fourier transformation of that term, you don't get any information out of it. The slope is zero. So, or the slope is extremely negative or extremely positive, and the model will attempt to fit that spline. F, like, it'll fit a spline between those points, but it'll be so noisy and non-useful that when you do the forecast, the data just looks, it looks like a crazy person built it because it's not designed for that. It's designed for relatively stable, like, heavily seasonal uh, data and social media platforms are very seasonal whether you cut it by locality of like a data center during periods of of the day what are your peaks early in the morning in a city that has good good public transportation everybody that's commuting they're on your platform around lunchtime peak right after work peak maybe in the last hour of the work day while people are trying to make it look like they're busy at their desk peak right after dinner peak right before bed, peak. And then you have this huge trough while people are sleeping. So there's a seasonality component by hour of day. There's also a seasonality component by day of week. More people are interacting with your platform, but you always have this baseline that exists, but you're going to have peaks of traffic of like, hey, people are communicating with one another a lot on Thursday evening, planning to do stuff together on the weekend, or people are doing a lot of communication on the weekend. So you have usage patterns that are very predictable. But if you're trying to apply that tool to something that doesn't share that, so that underlying nature of the data, it's going to be garbage. But don't blame the tool. Blame your data. Try something else out. And uh, that's my advice on that. Yeah. And Profit recently put out, recently as in in the past couple of years, put out a deep learning addition to the generalized additive model framework. So it essentially adds a couple of deep learning terms. I actually don't think we should get too deep into it. Uh, but if you are interested in doing some fancy uh, deep learning time series, but also have some interpretable components, the Neural Profit Library has some cool tools. Mm-hmm. And I, I've used it a couple of times, and it's it's kind of fun. And don't forget about our friends, uh, PMD Arima. Sort yeah. of an, it's like AutoML for time series. So it, it auto-tunes your stats models libraries. It's pretty awesome. The maintainers of that built something really cool. Yeah, 100%. Um, and then let's move on to the sort of the final class of time series models that at least I'm familiar with, which is deep learning. Ben, where do you see derp- deep learning used in time series and is it effective? To be frank and honest with you, out of many, many, many dozens of companies that I've interacted with on this topic over the last four years, I've seen exactly one project in pseudo production that uses a deep learning model for forecasting. Just one. I've seen hundreds. Time series only, right? Yeah. Yes. Only one that uses LSTM. And it was a very, 
it made sense that they were using that because of the complexity of what they were trying to model. And they could explain a great deal of the latent factors that actually influenced that time series trend. And it wasn't a, a problem that was well conditioned for traditional time series modeling. So it made perfect sense. I was like, yeah, this is what LSTMs are built for. This is awesome. Great work. I'll help you get into, into production, write some unit tests for you. But almost all the other ones I've seen have been demos or sort of research-led efforts. People wanting to use TensorFlow and PyTorch to do this. And, and this isn't to say it's not a good idea. It's just there wasn't enough of an accuracy gain in using that versus using something much simpler. So once they tested out something simpler, like classical time series modeling using stats models or profit or something, the LSTM implementation might have been 5% more accurate, but it costs 5,000 times as much money to train it and run it every day than it does to do the classical modeling. So when budget comes into fact and code complexity and retraining complexity and maintenance and the fact that you got to keep this thing running into production, the cost-benefit analysis just didn't support deep learning. Yeah, that, that's super interesting. And just so we have sort of a one-liner on how deep learning approaches time series, at least usually, is they take a recurrent neural network structure where you essentially horizontally stack neural nets. The most effective and sort of modern version of this, or at least one of the effective ones, is LSTM, which stands for Long Short-Term Memory. And it's basically just a recurrent, net, re recurrent neural network with gates. So those gates will determine how long you should be maintaining information about prior observations. So that's sort of the one-liner, but that's super interesting that you haven't actually seen it work in practice. Do you have any ideas on why that's the case, other than it's dumb expensive? It's just more complicated than the, the classical approaches. And keep in mind, this is bias. So it's, I haven't talked to every company on the planet that does forecasting, not not by any stretch of the imagination. And it could also just be that the companies that were struggling with doing this were just struggling because it's complicated. And then I just wasn't talking to the people that figured it out and were running it in production. So there's a lot of bias that goes into that statement about why, you know, it's it's not always the, the best thing to do. But the the team that I that I worked with that actually was doing it, they had tried classical modeling. So they went through it the right way, in my opinion which is, let's try the simplest stuff. Does it work? And they, they showed me all sorts of results and reports. Like, yeah, we tried this. Here's the results. And I'm like, yeah, that's garbage. Okay, well, how about this one? Like, yeah, we tried that. And here's the results. Like, okay, that's also garbage. And they're like, yeah. And then we came to, you know, RNNs. And then we were applying this, this like, you know, trying to determine what the trend was going to be. And then we would apply that to the RNN and it didn't really work that well. So then we tried this LSTM structure and, and then we modified that and we created like this additional memory that, that exists within that, that architecture. So we built our own custom model here. And I look at the code and I'm like, that's pretty clever. Let's see how it works. And we did the tests and it's like, yeah, that's, that's the best solution. And the, that worked because what they were predicting, it was so important for them to get pretty much dead on for a, a good solid prediction that it didn't matter how how many people they had to throw at it to implement it and maintain the code and get it staying in production. It was worth it. Got it. Hey, folks, if you love this podcast and would like to support the show, or if you wish you could listen without the sponsorship messages, then you're in luck. We're setting up new premium podcast feeds where you can get all of the episodes released after Christmas 2020 without the ads. Signing up will help us pay for editing and production. And you can go sign up at devchat.tv slash premium. Yeah. So LSTM and just deep learning in general tends to have a lot more fitting power because they're super, super complex. I mean, they're, they're neural networks with tons of weights. So it would make sense that it can fit a lot of the complexity of time series. But one potential explanation is that time series are univariate. So it's just one signal, essentially. And it's a pretty strong assumption that that signal has enough information in it or signal in it that it can forecast really accurately and you need to fit the crap out of it. Um, if you had exogenous factors or external variables, maybe really fitting that intensely would, would be beneficial. But there's so much noise in a time series that deep learning, I think, tends to overfit. And we want general trends instead of 
the, the minute uh, changes. Yep. So that definitely could be an explanation why deep learning, unless you have a really, really structured signal, why it doesn't perform as well as some of the simpler, smoother models. Yeah, and their implementation that they were dealing with, they had control over the environment. They weren't modeling like human activity with their business. They were monitoring monitoring equipment. So oh, they knew yeah. like where this signal where like where all these signals were coming from. They had all of the temperature data, they had all of the vibration data, they had all of this this data coming in. So it made sense to that because there's so so much autocorrelation that's occurring with these different factors, these exogenous regressor terms that it made sense to incorporate that into a, a very complex deep learning model. That's super cool. Noted. Cool. Well, we're just about at time. I'll do a quick recap, and then we will let you continue your amazing lives. So first, sort of starting from the beginning, it's really important to pick a good target. You have to know how the system works and how the target that you're looking to forecast interacts with the components in that system. Second, after you sort of have a good understanding of the problem, it's a good idea to start simple. That's always best practice unless you really, really know your stuff and know that simple will not work. I tend to start with AR models, just an autoregressive model, but you can build out an ARMA or ARMA model, go into ARIMA, SARIMA, all sorts of crazy things. Um, exogenous variables tend to be good for simulations with those linear-based models, but you don't know what that exogenous variable will look like in the future. So it's really hard to use that for forecasting. But for inference and explaining why things happen, super good. Next, we sort of talked a little bit about profit. It's a, a bit more complex. It moves away from a linear relationship between prior terms. And it fits a Fourier transformation or Fourier curve essentially to encompass seasonality. And it also has a nonlinear growth term to handle trend. Um, and this tends to do really well on business data just because that's what business data is structured like. It's usually a growth term with some sort of complex seasonality. And then finally, for deep learning, they're often recurrent neural network based. The more advanced version is LSTM. And then on top of that, there's tons of more advanced time series deep learning models. We didn't really get into that in too much detail, but often because time series is univariate and there's not a lot of signal uh, in a in a given um, in a given curve, it's the the simpler models tend to fit external data a lot better. But it does depend on your use case. And yeah, I, did I miss anything? No, you got it all. And beautiful. Stick around for ta- you know version two of this talk where we cover the other half of the list that that we had uh, compiled before for uh, recording this. And we'll get into uh, some really fun stuff. Like how do you scale it if you got to sell hot dogs in every park in America? <laughs> yeah. So cool. Well, this has been fun until next time. It's been Michael Burke and Ben Wilson. Have a good day, everyone. Take it easy. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com to learn more.